Call from mom. Answer it. Call silenced. Instacart knows nothing gets between you and the game. That's why they make ordering from your couch easy. Stock up today and get all your groceries for the week delivered in as fast as 30 minutes without missing a minute of the game. You have 47 new voicemails. Download the app to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. TuneIn is the audio platform with something for everyone. News. In order to secure convictions in a court of law, it is essential that we conclusively. Sports. The clock at four. Donchich. The step back three. You bet. Music. You set my world on fire. Even podcasts. Whatever you love, hear it right here on TuneIn. Go to tunein.com or download the TuneIn app to start listening. It's hard to forget the day that the 2020 presidential election came to an end last year. It was Saturday, November 7th, days after the last votes were cast in one of the most contentious races in American history. CBS News projects that Joe Biden has been elected the 46th president of the United States. The kid from Scranton becomes the next leader of the free world. The Stories and videos from that day were shared across social media. It was a moment for the history books. Just a few blocks from where Donald Trump's run for the presidency began five years ago. People are cheering, dancing, banging pots and pans to mark the end of his time in the White House. I see people jubilant as if sitting down the witch is dead kind of feeling. As we prepared for this episode, members of our team here at Odyssey remembered getting ready to report on that story. I remember I was on the bus in the Bronx with total strangers. I was on my way to get something to eat. Then, all of a sudden, someone got a notification on their phone saying that Biden won. Everyone cheered, including the bus driver. We're in downtown Berkeley, right? We're kind of camped out and eating, and cars were driving by with... American flags hanging out of the window with, you know, cardboard. People in my Chicago neighborhood seemed really relieved and happy, and there were fireworks going off, people in the streets. I sat inside my apartment in the Lower East Side area of New York. I wasn't watching the news or anything, but I could hear horns and bells outside my window, and people were shouting on the sidewalks. I looked out my fire escape, and my neighbors were on theirs too cheering and crying for joy. Biden had won. Tonight, we're seeing all over this nation, all cities and all parts of the country, indeed across the world, an outpouring of joy, of hope, renewed faith, and tomorrow, bring a better day. Fast forward a year later, America seems as divided as ever. And President Biden's approval rating has cratered. Americans have questioned Biden's COVID-19 mandates, the messy withdrawal of troops from Afghanistan. There are fears of inflation spiking and a fractured Democratic majority in the House and Senate, all of which have given Republicans, wounded by the Trump era, all of the hope going into next year's midterms. In this episode of Connect the Dots, what happened to all the hope and excitement Democrats and many other Americans had last year? Why are Americans doubting Joe Biden's leadership? How will it affect his plan to get his agenda through Congress? And where does this lead the Republicans heading into next year's midterm elections? 
I'm Linda Lopez, and this is Connect the Dots from Odyssey, a weekly podcast where we draw together multiple perspectives to unpack a single compelling story. We have a lot to unpack this week, and as we work to connect the dots, we'll hear from political minds on both the right and left in American politics. A former Virginia congressman, Tom Perriello, who now champions progressive causes, and veteran Republican strategist, Keith Naughton. But first, let's start our conversation with CBS News Chief Washington correspondent Major Garrett, one of the keenest political eyes who's been watching Washington for decades. He also hosts the podcast The Takeout. Democrats had so much hope a year ago. What happened? President Biden defeated President Trump, and that was, in the moment, a euphoric decision for Democrats and those who supported President Biden. The common reaction was to run out onto the streets, or it wasn't uncommon for people to run out on the streets and bang their horns and kind of dance a little bit. It was unusual in American presidential politics. And it almost had the feeling, Linda, of the wicked witch is dead. And I'm not saying metaphorically or literally President Trump was a wicked witch, but it had that feeling that something that was causing tremendous trauma and emotional reaction in this country was now going to soon be lifted. And then there came two really important runoff elections in Georgia, in which Democrats, after the celebration in the streets for them, they focused their attention, they raised a ton of money, they brought in lots of activists from outside of Georgia, motivated the voters who were there, and won not one, but two special elections, highly unusual for Democrats to do in any circumstance like that, almost without modern precedent. And then January 6th happens. We are coming on the air right now with breaking news because the U.S. Capitol has been placed on lockdown as angry protesters surround the building. We should note that the House and Senate have halted. And the country's re-traumatized by this thing that it had thought the election had already lifted from the country. This idea of President Trump and his supporters using tactics never before seen to slow or possibly stop a peaceful transition. It was a massive, massive shock. And we should recall that at that time, the country was still racked by COVID, racked by COVID. And the incoming administration had one overwhelming priority, get the vaccines distributed, get them distributed calmly, rationally, with no price tag, and as widely dispersed as possible. And if people look back at those early days, January, February, March, April, that's exactly what happened. Then there was an effort to rescue the economy yet again from all the ravages of COVID. $2 trillion, the American Relief Plan. No Republicans got on board with that, but Democrats moved that through. Checks in the mail, lots of support for schools and doctors and testing facilities and vaccine distribution. Wow, things are... There's momentum here. There's management. There's actual government functioning at a visible, touchable level. And for the first six months, President Biden and congressional Democrats, they're kind of chugging along. Then Afghanistan happens. President Biden defends his decision to withdraw U.S. troops out of Afghanistan. Tonight, the chaos in Kabul as uncertainty and fear grip the country. 
Not that that was a decision that was wrong, but all the confidence that President Biden exhibited about that decision didn't happen. He said, no, Kabul won't fall rapidly. It won't look like Saigon. To the eyes of many Americans, that's exactly what happened. It looked like Saigon or worse, and it did fall. And it looked like the president wasn't in touch with reality, even though he made a hard decision, which most people in this country still support. But the way that decision was carried out and his seeming inability to understand the downsides or prepare for the downsides rattled people. And that's when you began to see for the first time the president's poll numbers begin to drop among independents. Republicans had already begun to pull away if they hadn't pulled away already. Democrats were solid, but independents begin to wander away. Well, then Delta variant becomes another problem. And then the rules again and the backsliding perceived. Then comes the next big thing. There are two big pieces of legislation so important to the White House. And yet they're locked together in this strange, completely incomprehensible way to most Americans. Wait a minute. One's related to the other and they're tied together, though they're not. And the drift and the drift and the drift goes on and on and on. And even Washington experience reporters like me are kind of like, wow, there is such a maze of details here and procedural thickets. I can't even chop through it all. Well, if I can't chop through it, hello. Right. <laughs> what's the rest of the country to think about it? And this drift and disarray and disagreement becomes synonymous with democratic rule in Washington. Those are not good words. Disagreement, division, delay, drift. All of that is bad. And the president is sort of saddled with all of that. The immigration crisis, whether it's real or imagined, appears to be more real than imagined as each and every month goes on. That doesn't help. Inflation, supply chain, crime in the streets and urban areas, all of it becomes irritants. Irritants in the mind and the psyche of a lot of voters. And suddenly that early four to five months of momentum feels like it's dissipated entirely. And things feel like they're retrenching in some sort of negative feedback loop. And the president doesn't seem to have a big set of answers. And then the mid, then these two governor's races happen in New Jersey and Virginia, and there's a shock effect. People are like, not happy. Not happy. It's you, Democrats can repair this, but... Only if they acknowledge that that first four or five months is now being viewed differently after the next four or five months. And if you're going to try to understand what worked in the four and five, first four and five, and what didn't in the back four and five, it's about performance, what you're delivering, what you're discussing, and what you're proving to the American people. And that's where they've come up short. And they have time to rethink it. They have time to recontextualize it, but not much. Then came the last week where there were big gains for Republican candidates in Virginia, New Jersey, and races in the suburbs of Long Island, New York, all regions that President Biden won over a year ago. How are Republicans framing this right now? If you're talking about the Republican governor who just won in Virginia, he aligned with Donald Trump, but not too closely. So is Donald Trump still a factor or how are Republicans going about it? Going the short ahead? answer is Donald Trump is still a factor. He's a factor in terms of being the most visible spokesperson on behalf of a motivated base of voters. He's not enough to win elections, though, in blue states or purplish states that are just in between red and blue. 
He simply isn't. He lost to Joe Biden in Virginia by 10 points. The absence of the specter of Trump allowed Glenn Youngkin, the Republican nominee, who played footsie with Trump to become the nominee, to be a non-Trumpian figure in the general conversation of that Virginia governor's race and focus on other issues. And Democrats, I think, looking back on it, maybe now regret this. They made it all about Trump. Well, when Trump's not on the ticket and isn't there, it's hard to focus on that. You're sort of thinking about a nightmare you'd rather not remember for Democrats and maybe some independents. But Youngkin's like, I'm the candidate. I'm the one on the ballot. Trump's not coming here. As a matter of fact, no Republican surrogates are coming in. Now, there's a backstory to that. You can't have a surrogate come to help you if you don't have Trump come to help you. Why? Because Trump will be angry. Why? Because you're pretending or suggesting that those other surrogates are as meaningful to you as Trump. He won't accept that. So if you don't have, if you have a non-Trump camp, campaign with me mandate, that means no other surrogates can apply either. Because anyone else you bring in aggravates Trump. So you're basically on your own. Well, Virginia showed you can be on your own. And actually being on your own is like, I'm not Trump. See, I'm constantly in front of you and you never see Trump. And if the other party is constantly running against Trump, you say, who's that guy? I'm here. And so for Republicans, I actually think after the Virginia and New Jersey races, Trump is interesting. Trump is helpful. But Trump's not decisive. You have to do things that are non-Trump-like in order to win. Now, if you govern like a Trump Republican and voters notice and turn against you, that's one thing. But if you don't, and you just basically govern as a center-right Republican, more traditional like Mitt Romney. I mean, Glenn Youngkin is much more like Mitt Romney. He worked for the Carlisle Group and McKinsey. He's a multimillionaire who funded his own campaign largely. He's right out of the Mitt Romney category of the Republican Party. Carlisle Group and McKinsey are not the pedigree of a populist. But Glenn Youngkin figured out a way to thread that little needle. So Republicans now have a model about how to be less than Trump and more successful. And the less than Trump part is going to be interesting as how Republicans sort of think about their party's collective future. How much Trump can you be? How much Trump should you be? And how much Trump is too dangerous? The infrastructure bill did just pass. Along with it is coming numbers from a recent poll for President Biden that show his lowest numbers ever. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Do those connect the dots for us there? Do those eventually come together or what is happening? So when will Biden get credit for infrastructure? You know, it may may take two or three or four months um, in the sense that. What was supposed to, what was infrastructure supposed to be? Well, it's supposed to create jobs. And if it does create jobs, that will be noticeable probably within four to six months. But other things will compete for voters' attentions and happiness or sadness then as well. But remember, infrastructure was also supposed to represent this ability to create a deal and to create a bipartisan common purpose. Well, he did that in August. And then he put basically put that accomplishment up on the shelf, tying it to whatever the progressives were going to do with this other agenda. Well, that decision has been made. Voter dissatisfaction with that has been well-documented, and he's not going to get that back. He's not going to get back what he decided to put on the shelf in August, which is an accomplishment that should have 
or that rather could have stood on its own. I'm not in the position of telling politicians what they should have done. But what could have stood on its own, hey, I'm the deal maker. I'm the expert on the Senate. I'm the expert on the legislative process. Four other presidents have tried this. I got it done. Look at the bipartisan group standing here. We're all together. That's what it looks like, America. I'll get on to the next, but let's let's hold this up right now. I guarantee you, Terry McAuliffe, the Democratic nominee defeated in Virginia, would have much preferred that strategy. He would have much preferred to have spent half of August and all of September talking about that's what Democrats do when they're in charge. They get things done, they bring people together, and they solidify important issues and then deliver important accomplishments, not only for the people of Virginia, but nationwide. Instead, Terry McAuliffe's like, Washington, what are you doing? Help me out, help me out, help me out. There was no help. And that became a huge problem. So three or four months from now, when infrastructure is a real deal, people may be really happy with it. And if inflation is a little bit less tamed, the supply shortages of Christmas and the holidays aren't as bad as people fear, maybe there's a reassessment and an uptick for Biden. But it's going to be hard work because a lot was lost August to early November. A lot was lost. And rebuilding it in a divided and partisan country is much harder than it was 10 or 15 or 20 years ago. More of my conversation with Major Garrett and the president's infrastructure win this week coming up. But let's take a closer look at last week's election. And let's start with that governor's race in Virginia. I asked former Virginia Congressman Tom Perriello, now executive director of the group Open Society U.S., what lessons Democrats learned from that defeat. I think there are a lot of lessons in it. I mean, first of all, um, in 11 of the last 12 governor's races in Virginia, voters have voted against whatever party is in the White House. So it's a little bit of a reactionary wave. And considering that in Obama's first year, uh, Democrats lost my state of Virginia by 19 points, the fact that this was a pretty close election suggests actually that there's a much stronger foundation for the Democratic Party in Virginia and for those that are supporting you know, that progress. Um, that being said, I think voters really um, were saying, look, we don't want to go back to Donald Trump, um, but we also don't want to have an election that's just about being for or against Donald Trump. And while Terry McAuliffe ran a very um, strong race and had a strong record, uh, the fact is a lot of it was focused on connecting Youngkin to Trump. And I think there were a lot of parents out there that were saying, OK, but <clears throat> what are you going to do for us? And the fact is, that's actually a good framework for Democrats. Democrats are trying to make our public schools open again, a place of quality learning, a place where we teach facts and not fairy tales about our history, uh, where we are protecting kids from the kind of culture warriors trying to invade from the right uh, on those issues. Um, And I think when it comes to living wage, paid leave, um, and getting people back to work, uh, Democrats are going to have a very good message for next year. So I think the message from Virginia was, if you look down ballot, where many of the delegates were running on that record of delivering, they were able to you know, outperform the top of the ticket. But just days after those Republican gains, Democrats had a win of their own, with the House passing the president's infrastructure bill. Yes, Democrats did have a very public fight to find consensus on passing that bill on its own. But Tom Perriello sees that in a more positive light. Well, for all the talk about, you know, is the left of the party or the center of the party and ascendance, 
Um, I think we're better off when people come together. And I think in this case, you saw the progressives were sick and tired of being taken for granted by the Democratic Party and, frankly, by the media. And they were actually able to win some major concessions on Thursday night, including an important compromise on some immigration reform components, a few weeks of paid leave and cheaper prescription drugs, all of which are very important to struggling families in the working class and the middle class. Those were concessions people had written off, and progressives really helped uh, deliver that. But for moderates, it was really important to not just have an infrastructure bill, uh, but to have it with bipartisan support. And there were a lot of concerns about uh, you know, some of the fiscal pay-fors in the bill. And I think what you saw was um, leadership listening to both sides of that. You have a bill that is either fully or mostly paid for, which is certainly not true of anything the Republicans tried to do under Trump that blew huge deficits wide open. Um, we really want these things to apply to the middle class. I think we all have our you know, hearts go out to those who are <clears throat> struggling on the poorest end of the spectrum, but it's off, often the middle class that gets squeezed. And right now there's a lot for the middle class. And so I think you really see what what the media likes to you know cover as chaos or infighting actually is what good governing looks like. I think this was um, dedicated people who represent very, very different districts coming together to talk through serious policy issues and reach common ground. And that meant between moderates and progressives, New England states and southern states and western states, uh, between the climate folks and the care economy folks, those who are more worried about elderly care versus child care, you really just saw people put the national interest ahead of their own particular interests. And there was a little give and take there. And I think what we ended up with is something American people can be really proud of. Um, and the Democratic caucus deserves a lot of credit for um, bringing that together. But that's not how Keith Naughton sees it. The veteran Republican strategist told me that when it comes to the next phase, the second half of the Biden Build Back Better plan, he thinks Democratic infighting is likely to doom it. He uses the example of Democrats disagreeing on the proposed cap on state and local taxes, the SALT deduction. I don't know how they're going to pass it, because if you've got um, members of, of Congress from New York and New Jersey who want that SALT repeal, and you've got Sanders and his faction who are completely opposed to that SALT tax uh, deduction, uh, you know, limitation repeal, I don't know how they get over that. Uh, that issue. So I think that's a huge stumbling block within the Democratic caucuses. So I'm not sure how they, you know, cut the knot, so to speak, on that without really stripping down their wish list, which has already been stripped down significantly. Now, I think overall, what commentators have missed about this dynamic, and it's been very destructive for the Democratic side, is how McConnell on the Republican side, really managed this very well by allowing the popular package and the infrastructure bill is popular to pass. He set up a situation where the Democrats ended up fighting amongst themselves over their larger issues. When the Progressive Caucus decided to take that bill hostage, I think that's really hurt uh, Biden and the Democrats. I think it hurt him in this election. I think it made him look um, very weak and not much of a leader. Um, it created a serious fissures within the party. And eventually the progressives had to climb down 
And I think that was a real humiliation. So I think it's going to play some bitter dividends going forward within the party. The veteran GOP strategist also has strong feelings about next year's midterms and how Republicans might better their chances of winning more seats in both the House and the Senate. Next year is going to be a very interesting year. And, uh, you know, they seem to get more interesting as the years go past. Politics is not getting easier. You know, interestingly, you know, the biggest problem for the Republicans is Trump, because you don't know when he's going to when he's going to come in. I mean, I think that Youngkin would have won by more if Trump hadn't stuck his nose in at the last minute and talked about coming up for a rally and trying to take credit and, and so forth. I think that might have cost him a point or two. But, you know, I think you're going to find that in these Senate races, these Republican candidates, they don't want that guy anywhere right. near them. And the only people who want him around are in, rate, or in states that are, you know, 65, 35 Republican. Someone who has covered Donald Trump, the candidate and the president, and now President Joe Biden, is CBS's Major Garrett. And he's not one to pull any punches in his political analysis. I wanted to hear what he thought about the pushback progressive Democrats seem to be getting in some circles on big issues like climate change, family leave and fair wages. One of the most interesting things that you have to learn in politics is that it's not sufficient to be right if the voters aren't ready. Okay, what I mean by that, you can be certain that your political solution or policy prescription is right. That gets you halfway. You've decided there's something that needs to be done and you're going to propose doing it. But if voters aren't ready for it, your rightness doesn't solve the problem. You have to get them ready for it. And let me give you a classic example of this. In 2004, Linda, 11 states in our country approved constitutional amendments to prohibit, to make illegal same-sex marriage. One of them was Oregon, 2004. Okay? That was a concerted effort among voters to say no. We're going to put it in our state constitution, banning same-sex marriage. Ten years later, what? Nobody even – that's not even a conversation anymore. The, the proposition that same-sex marriage was right for America was correct. But voters for a time were not ready. Then they became ready, and it became a non-issue. So you have to be right, and you've got to push. But you also have to explain and be willing to live with that uncertain inter- interval where people may not be ready. And that's where I think we are in this whole conversation about our racial history. I think our country will come around to it over time, just like it did with same-sex marriage. But initially, there'll be resistance. They'll be like, what are you doing? What are you changing all these things I'm accustomed to? Well, progressives and those who really believe they're right about this have to deal with that interval. And how you deal with it is really important. Because if the the same-sex marriage movement didn't say you're all bigots and you're all terrible and we're never going to talk to you, what did they say? They said, here's what love looks like. Are you really scared of this? This is what love looks like. And we're going to show you what love looks like over and over and over again. That's all we're going to do. And what happened? Over time, people said, no, that is what love looks like. Hmm. Maybe I'm not, maybe I shouldn't be so scared of it. But that right and ready place is the hardest part of politics. And progressives have to figure that out right now 
because whether it's police reform, voting rights, I don't even want to use the word, I don't like to use the word wokeism or whatever, but this idea that we need to go more deeply into our racial past and have a better, deeper understanding of that, all of those things are meeting pockets of resistance that are showing up in elections. We got to learn some lessons from that. And one of the lessons you have to learn is maybe I need to be a little bit more humble. Maybe I need to go on bended knee. Maybe I need to meet voters where they are and we'll work this out together because there are examples, plenty of them in our history where that's happened, but not if you tell them you're stupid, you're bigoted, you don't even deserve to be heard. That shuts things down. You talked about that momentum they had in the first few months, that first four or five months when things were really optimistic. They tried to use that momentum to push forward these two big pieces of legislation. They keep calling them unprecedented pieces of legislation. Do you think the Democrats overestimated the momentum that they could put behind these to push those through? I think you can make a fair case that they did. And, and there's two ways of looking at this. And I can tell you the way the White House looks at it. The White House looks at it like this. The reaction against President Trump and Republican rule was deep. And there were a lot of things discussed in the Democratic primary process. Joe Biden, wa- Joe Biden won as the moderate alternative. But even his moderation was more progressive than moderation was judged even eight years ago. Things that were moderate in the 2020 Democratic conversation would have been wildly progressive in the 2008-2012 context of the Democratic Party. So they felt there was momentum because this thing, these things had been talked about. Suddenly, Obamacare wasn't regarded as some huge progressive lurch forward. It was sort of like kind of milk toast, And single payer was what the whole Democratic conversation was about, moving more progressive. George Floyd accelerated all of that. So within the Democratic conversation, you could say, look, the country has heard about this. They sided with us. We won by 7 million votes nationally. That's a bit of a mandate. We won the two Georgia races. That's got to tell us something. You know, we told Georgia voters, if you give us control, we're going to be in control of everything in Washington. And it happened. Why not go big? And many in the Biden administration have memories of being in the Obama administration when it is now considered doctrinal truth that President Obama in the earliest, most distressing days of the Great Recession did not go big enough, and that his interventions were too timid economically, and that if he had gone bigger, more problems would have been solved, and government would have looked better, not worse, as it did. And having taken that message, you combine those two things. Hey, we won the presidency. We won the two runoffs. The country appears to be with us. Let's go big. So big is what we got. American Rescue Plan, $2 trillion. That's big. Infrastructure, another trillion. Build Back Better started at $6 trillion. Right. Then even at three and a half, it was smaller. But even at, if it ends up at two, Linda, that's $5 trillion in one calendar year with the smallest legislative majorities any modern American president has had. We're not talking about LBJ majorities or FDR majorities where there are dozens upon dozens of votes you can write off. There's not a single vote the Democratic majorities can write off. You need every single vote you can find. Everyone has to be locked arms. So you have a huge agenda and you can take no defections. Okay, that's the hardest thing imaginable in politics. The very hardest thing. So that 
you have and that, to that be that's a comp, that's a complication. Yeah, you, so you have to ask: Do all these different factions in within the Democratic Party, when you're looking at the progressives, the moderates, and even the more conservative moderates, how how bad is that for Democrats, or is it a thing? Is it a healthy thing? So I know the White House believes this. Yes, it got infrastructure done later. It happened as a reaction to the two governor's races in Virginia, New Jersey, the loss completely in Virginia. You lose the governor's race. You lose the other two statewide constitutional offices. You lose the House of Delegates. It's a complete wipeout in Virginia and nearly lose a theoretically popular Democratic governor who was favored by eight to 10, hangs on by one or two. Wow, that's a shock. So the infrastructure passes. And now there's this effort to get Build Back Better in. And they still believe they can do it. Ultimately, they can do it. And in the end, the White House believes when once that's done and this $5 trillion is in the economy and we start to see the benefits of it and we start to explain the benefits of it, no one will remember, let alone care, about two months of drift, disarray, and division. That's the White House theory. It is a high-risk theory, Linda, because you can't predict what people are going to remember. You can ask them to remember things differently. You can give them different things to think about, but you can't tell them what to remember. And there's a great line in one of my favorite political movies, The American President, script written by Aaron Sorkin, no right-winger he, (laughs) who puts in the words of Andrew Shepard's chief of staff, played by Martin Sheen, the American people have a funny way of deciding what is or isn't their business. Right. American people decide what they care about and why. And you have to engage them at so many different levels constantly. So until Build Back Better is done, the American people are still thinking drift, disorganization, delay, and all these negatives. And until things start changing and their lives start improving, and Democrats can say, well, this is what it was before, and this is what it's like after, and we're the reason why you're happier now. They're stuck with where they are, and it's a bad place to be politically. I also wanted to ask Major Garrett what the chances actually are of getting the Bills Back Better plan passed now in the coming months. It was always going to be hard to do that, Bill, because you have to pay for it. That's the president's requirement that you have to raise taxes. What are the taxes? How do you raise them? And by what amount? You also have divisions among Democrats about what are the top priority items. Does immigration fit in there? It did on the House side. Can it survive in the Senate? We were told for about a week or so that paid family leave was out. Now it's back in. Does that survive? There was a framework that everyone more or less agreed to. All this is going to have to go through many more legislative cycles and negotiations. I still believe that having come this far and getting this close, Democrats will get this done. And I know for progressives, their feeling is, yes, we held this other thing hostage. We allowed you or we we forced you to hold this other thing, meaning infrastructure hostage. Now we'll get our act together and we'll work on this other thing. There are many, many, many difficulties, but they are so close. And I can't believe President Biden is essentially going to say, I'll take this one thing I could have had in August and have gone through three months of agony for nothing but that. You've got, you've bought the agony. Why don't you buy the upside benefit of this other bill? I believe that's that's the political reality. 
And it's the only thing that makes sense at this stage. So as hard as it may be, I believe they will get it done. Our thanks to CBS News Chief Washington Correspondent Major Garrett. Aside from seeing his coverage on all CBS News platforms, radio, TV, digital, Major is also the host of a great weekly podcast, The Takeout. And thank you for listening to our podcast this week. Connect the Dots was written and produced by Sidney Fishman, Tim Schelt, and me. Production assistance from Dempsey Pilat and Lauren Barry. And the show was edited by Tim Schelt and Mallory Samara. The executive producer of Connect the Dots is Mallory Samara. Subscribe to Connect the Dots so you don't miss an episode. Find us on the Odyssey app, on Apple Podcasts, and wherever you get your audio. Thank you so much for listening. I'm Linda Lopez. Tune in is the audio platform with something for everyone. News. In order to secure convictions in a court of law, it is essential that we conclusively. Sports. The clock at four. Donchich. The step back three. You bet. Music. You set my world on fire. And even podcasts. Whatever you love, hear it right here on TuneIn. Go to tunein.com or download the TuneIn app to start listening. We really need new phones. T Mobile will cover the cost of four amazing new iPhone 15s, and each line is only $25 a month. New iPhone 15s? It's better over here. Only at T Mobile get four iPhone 15s on us and four lines for $25 per line per month with eligible trade in when you switch. Minimum of four lines for $25 per line per month without a pay discount using debit or bank account. $5 more per line without auto pay, plus taxes and fees. Phone fee at 24 monthly bill credits for all well qualified customers. Contact us before canceling account to continue bill credits or credit stop and balance on required finance agreement due. $35 per line connection charge apply. Ctmobile.com. 